0: Hi, I'm your host Pratik Panda and you're listening to Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast by Philo. Here we talk to the best and brightest in influencer marketing to help answer all your questions from finding the right influencers to making sure you have the best influencer marketing strategy. We also dive deep into the tools and data you need to ensure a winning influencer marketing campaign. So let's get started. Hello and welcome to Impulse, the Influencer Marketing Podcast. I'm your host Pratik Panda, the VP of Marketing at Philo. Our guest today is Scott Guthrie, the Director General at Influencer Marketing Trade Body and an Influencer Marketing Advisor to various brands, agencies, and Influencer Marketing platforms. He's also the host of the Influencer Marketing Lab Podcast and a member of various editorial and advisory boards for Influencer Marketing. Influencer Marketing Trade Body is a professional membership body for influencer marketing agencies and influencer marketing platforms. The IMTB is dedicated to building a robust, sustainable future for the influencer marketing industry. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Let's get started. Cool. So, I mean, you've been doing this a long time. Why influencer marketing?
1: Well, you know, at a personal level, there are a couple of reasons. I'm fascinated by the democratization of media and with it the removal of traditional gatekeepers, newspaper barons and movie studio owners once played kingmakers or kingbreakers of fame. And social media has given us that ability to have a voice and a choice, a choice to choose who to celebrate as creators and a a choice to turn ourselves into creators to give ourselves a voice. But I also joined at a really interesting time. It was around 2015. The industry was minuscule by comparison. It was worth about half a billion dollars then globally. Today it's worth around about 16.5, 16.7 billion dollars today. So our industry is moving at quite a lick it's becoming more nuanced, it's becoming more sophisticated, it's professionalizing at speed. And that, that excites me, I think, just being part of that. But your question could be asked in another way, and I don't know if you're asking me a more philosophical question of why influencer marketing. And I think for that, you know, it's that shift from web one into web two. Web 2 with its so the creation of social media platforms and their launching, the creation of the rails on which created content runs, whether it was MySpace in 2003 or Facebook in 2004 or YouTube 2005, Twitter in 2006, Tumblr 2007 and, and Instagram in 2010. All within seven years of each other, there's a lot of platforms launching. So I think that is one reason for influencer marketing, computers moving from being untethered used to be just a, a computer on a desk it's moved from a desk to a lap to a hand you know we've all got smartphones now and the modem's been replaced by Wi-Fi, 4Gs replaced by 5G so it means that text has been replaced by images images replaced by video And I think lastly why influencer marketing? I think it's a fallout of the last global recession. That ended around 2009 that uh, that really dented the blind trust we have for institutions whether they were banks or big businesses or media outlets we lost that blind trust but in turn we gave more of our trust to people like us and people like us were those creators those influencers
0: you touched upon a couple of things where i want to dive a little bit deeper one you mentioned about the whole transition from web to 2.0, we are starting to see the trend for web 3.0 now. And one of the theories behind that is a lot of these platforms in the web 2.0 space limit the way you can do things. For example, you could be a creator with a million fans on Instagram. And if you lose access to your Instagram account tomorrow, you lose all the effort that you've created over the years, right? The idea behind web 3.0 is that platforms would be more decentralized So you could theoretically, at least today, move your audiences with you, right? Do you think that kind of shift is going to happen? And what does that mean for relationships that creators are building with their fans and followers?
1: Well, I think it's a really poignant question. This week, when we're looking at what's happening with TikTok in the United States, for example, building your house on rented land, as that sort of cliche goes. I think we've become more savvy to it. I think there was, you know, the apocalypse with YouTube back in, was it 2016 or 17, the collapse of Vine moving over from YouTube to Instagram, then out to TikTok, and then maybe back to YouTube shorts. So I think we're creators and and marketers are a little bit more savvy around it. They have more opportunity to spread their risk. Web2 was fantastic. It enabled us to stop just reading other people's text and to create our own content. That was amazing. But you're absolutely right. It was centralized in a handful of companies. In theory, Web3 will allow us to port our communities and create our own versions of TikTok, our own versions of Instagram. Now, I think there will be a few lucky winners, and so that will be sort of Darwinian, that it will be the strongest kind of survive on that. But in theory, it's very exciting for content creators to be able to port their community And then not just be beholden to another person's platform and the vagaries of the algorithm and the vagaries of a a change in terms of service. They'll be able to write their own terms of service in blockchain, write their own ideas. And people that create that content and people that part of the community will be, be able to benefit from it from writing the rules, but also benefit from it financially. So potentially, it's very exciting. Last year, everything was all about NFTs. It was all about the metaverse. It was all about Web3. This year, not so much. This year, it's all about AI. So I think, you know, these things are, are happening, but they're not going to happen next year or, or the year after. They will come, and they will, but it's more like five, ten years away rather than three, six months away.
0: Got it. The other thing that you mentioned was this time post-recession 2008-2009, which kind of led to growth of creators and this industry actually getting established, right? And from a half a billion dollar industry to about 16-17 billion dollars today, it's expected to be about a hundred billion dollars over the next five to seven years. There is the trend which picked up during the pandemic phase where people got affected with their jobs, a lot of things was happening, more people started spending time online And that brought in a lot more new creators. And we are seeing that sort of trend continue now with everything that's happening in the financial industry. Likewise, in the tech industry, a lot of people losing jobs again, and we are seeing a lot more creators become more active in spending time in creating content and actually looking at being creator as a full-time job. Do you think that trend is also going to stay? Will this actually become a... Serious thing for people to
1: do. Yeah, I think so. And scrolling back, the only way you could really make money as a creator was if you creating content on YouTube and shared in the AdSense, or whether you built a community and you could, I suppose, rent out that community through influencer marketing. Now there are so many other forms of revenue streams at a creator's disposal, whether it's moving from merch or to proper products creating podcasts like we're talking today or newsletters or having discord servers and paid for access to that lots of other different ways to generate money so I think we will start to rethink the role of a creator and I think the role will sort of bleed into what a brand wants in the way that creators and brands work together but I think you know, I think we'll move away from creators sort of needing a gazillion hits. To be profitable, as in you know, subscribers and views down to a smaller level of diehard fans, and uh, whether that's a thousand, whether that's even a hundred, you know, there are these diehard fans that will be able to sustain a creator in the long form.
0: Yeah, and you brought in a good point there because there is this shift happening towards identifying more micro influencers, nano influencers. These are folks having less than. 5,000, 10,000 followers and fans, but a lot more tied to the creator and therefore better trust. As a brand, if you are looking at identifying influencers, how do you balance between going after influencers who have millions of followers versus these more niche micro and nano influencers?
1: Well, I think the short answer is it depends on budget doesn't it? You know, But it also depends on your objectives. You know, Where in that sales funnel are you playing? Where are you trying to shift that consumer? Is it bringing awareness? Is it being top of mind? Is it building brand equity? Is it consideration phase? Is it, is it shifting product? Is it giving repeat sales? And I think different creators play a part in different elements of that. And I think niche are especially good at the bottom bit, the trustworthy bit, as in helping to convert into a sale. I think increasingly we're moving away from working with creators who have big social followings, moving into being led by creators and the values that they hold, the worldview that they share, the behaviors that they imbue. And I think that increasingly, and I think we're sort of led by Gen Z on this, you know, that Gen Z wants to buy from a company that they trust and they believe in. And that goes through the value process as well. So it's not just about the size and the demographics or the important data stuff, but it's also about the softer side. Do they share the same values? Do they share the same worldview as you as a brand? And I think increasingly we'll see that in niches as well. That's why you go to a niche, someone that really chimes with your target audience.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I ask this to almost all of my guests. And give me one controversial hot take on influencer marketing that you stand by that maybe people agree or don't agree to.
1: Well, I think influencer marketing challenges the supremacy of television. And what I mean by that is TV advertising still takes the lion's share, the largest slug of ad spend globally, but it's in decline. In 2017, Over a third of all ad spend globally went on TV ads. By 2020, TV ad spend had dropped from 34% down to 29%. This year, it's going to sit around 26%. So it's gone from over a third to around about a quarter. For the same period, social media advertising has climbed from around 10.5% to 15.5%. This year, it's going to be around 17.5%. So we're not far away from the crosshairs of TV ad coming down and crossing over with influencer marketing coming up. But it also challenges the essence of television. I think it begs the question, what is TV anyway? What is television anyway? Mr. Beast has 138 million subscribers on his main YouTube channel. According to Social Blade, his views have been watched more than a billion times in the last 30 days alone. So if TV is about reach, Mr. Beast commands the same viewership as a top 10 Netflix show is TV about production values. Again, Mr. Beast spends $4 million each and every month on YouTube videos. He spent $3.5 million creating the Netflix hit Squid Game about a year ago. So I think you know there is a real challenge for what we watch and what is television and what value does influencer marketing in the creator economy add there. That's
0: interesting and I see a similar trend on the digital marketing side also where you know I've spent more than a decade on that channel and as much as as marketers we want to budget out money for performance ads or paid marketing influencer marketing is starting to be that serious channel where you would want to you know start allocating some money and start measuring success but at the same time it's getting a lot more difficult for paid performance ads to perform well on any channel for that matter, because as buyers also, we are getting smarter on identifying what's an ad that a brand is trying to push on you versus what is a more authentic influencer led campaign, right? Even those are identifiable, but increasingly influencers are also focusing on authenticity. And that's what builds the whole trust, right? You did talk about trust being important in this whole space. Talking about trust and, you know, maintaining this sort of integrity, you are the Director General at the Influencer Marketing Trade Body. Tell me a little bit more about IMTB. Why was this started? What do you guys do?
1: Well, thank you for that's a lovely question to ask. The backstory, I suppose, very quickly was I was approached by a handful of industry leaders who believed our industry wasn't being effectively represented. And they asked me to front an association devoted purely to influencer marketing. So, our purpose or our aims are fourfold to act as a unified, authoritative voice in the space, and that's for publications, but also politicians and, and other policy providers, policy makers, also to advance the interests of members. And we have regular meetings, for example, and we share ideas and where the industry is going in, in a sort of a, a safe environment. But I also create a load of briefing documents on where the industry is going and specific areas within influencer marketing. We also provoke the high levels of skill and knowledge and competence And we do that through our code of practice and code of conduct, but also working with others, industry bodies on their influencer marketing code of conduct. And we're developing a community of practice online, but also, as I said, physically, uh, we meet up as well to discuss things. And the more we meet up as senior practitioners, the the more we can trust each other and share each other's. Because ultimately, we're all competitors sitting around the table, but we all have ideas and a need to push the industry forward together, to professionalize it
0: together? Yeah, I mean, obviously, even though there are multiple competitors sitting at the same table, I think, end of the day, everybody wants the industry to grow, right? And that has been our philosophy here at Philo as well, where we primarily work with brands who work with creators. But at the same time, we spend a lot of our effort helping out creators as well, even though that's not a revenue opportunity for us. But unless... Creators start making money. They won't have enough disposable income to spend on tools and services. And therefore, the industry itself has to grow together. And, you know, even though there are multiple competitors, we have to come together to help that entire creator economy grow.
1: Well it's enlightened self interest, isn't it, right? It's not purely it's not purely altruism. We're doing it because we want a long, sustainable, profitable industry. And to do that we need to professionalise, we need to be accountable to our customers, but also to society as a whole. And so that's why we're pushing best practice. And also explaining to other disciplines, whether it's the media or to politicians or to uh, other sections of society, what influencer marketing is and what it isn't. You know, I think sometimes there's a conflation of terms of what influencer marketing is. And so it's sort of correcting it and also pushing our industry forward. And IMTB was
0: recently appointed as a member of the Committee of Advertising Practice, What is this committee? What does it do? How is it helping IMTB to be part of this committee?
1: Yeah, well, I'm super excited about this. I'm really excited, of course, on behalf of the influencer marketing trade body, but I'm also really excited about it on behalf of the whole of our industry, our whole of our influencer marketing sector. CAP is the Committee of Advertising Practice. It's responsible for writing and for updating the rules on advertising in the UK via its code, the CAP code. It's the sister organization of the ASA, the Advertising Standards Authority. So CAP writes and updates the code. The ASA administers this code and keeps ads in the UK make sure that they're legal, they're decent, they're honest, and they're truthful. So I'm really excited because the Influencer Marketing Trade Body has become CAP's first new member in over a decade. And for the first time, influencer marketing is represented by a dedicated body, and that dedicated body is IMTB. So that shows, I think, that influencer marketing is coming of age, and it shows to the regulators the importance of our sector in the whole advertising ecosystem.
0: So do you think this is a first step in a direction to not only establish influencer marketing as a serious contender, but also at the same time bring some sort of responsibility to the whole influencer marketing community as well because it's a two-way street right i mean yes there's a body that will help you get more identified but it's also more responsibility on influencers to be more true to how they've been working with brands as well
1: yeah sure so i mean to be clear we represent or the imtb represents influencer marketing agencies and influencer marketing platforms that operate in the uk uk jurisdiction at the moment but of course, the ecosystem can't work without brands, and it can't work without consumers, and it can't work without creators. So we work very closely with Isbur. Isber is the uh, Incorporated Society of British Advertisers. They're a membership body that has been around about 120 years. I think possibly the oldest advertising trade body in the world. They look after brands. We look after agencies. So that's a nice fit. But we don't look after... We don't represent creators. Some of our members have talent agencies attached to them, Whalaw, for example. And of course, we're very proud to have Storm Model Management on our team as well. But really, we don't represent the creators en masse. But what we're trying to do and what the ASA wants to do, and what CAP wants to do, is make sure that everybody is aware of the rules and the regulations around advertising in the UK. And I mentioned right at the top, you asked, you know, why I got into influencer marketing, why I was excited about it. And I mentioned democratizing the media. And that's super exciting removing those gatekeepers. But the gatekeepers also had a role in making sure there were checks and balances, making sure that things complied with rules and regulations, sort of the boring stuff, if you like. Now, everybody with a smartphone can be an influencer. It's making sure that, you know, you're starting from the bottom up rather than the top down in making sure that everybody who has the capacity to influence, understands that a marketing piece of communication needs to be obviously identifiable to a consumer as a marketing piece of communication. And that's what we're trying to do with the ASA. And the moment, it's around hidden advertising or covert advertising, which really just means that you haven't declared, obviously, that that piece of communication is an ad, i.e. putting in a hashtag ad somewhere, obviously. Got it.
0: And talking about authenticity and responsibility, a lot of influencers over time, whether by choice or not, get pulled into controversies or get negative publicity. Do you think as brands you have to be really cautious about picking influencers in that sense? What advice would you give to brands who are trying to discover what kind of influencers they should work with?
1: Well, this is a brand safety issue, isn't it? There's a great term that I like. I'm not a fan of the definition, I'm a fan of the term offense archaeologist. This describes these keyboard warriors who rubbage around online, poring over old tweets, over old comments, over old social media posts, over old YouTube videos of a past life of a creator to identify the hope of trying to identify material that kind of transgresses contemporary norms or something that might have been all right five years ago but doesn't really pass the smell test now. So, you know, how can brands be wary of that? How can they Preserve the safety of their brand. It was about doing your research, isn't it? It's about looking into sort of the back catalogue, if you like, of influencers. You do that. There are tools for you to, to be able to do that. But it's also being pragmatic. It's understanding you know, how far do you go back? Do you go back a year? Do you go back three years, five years? How far do you go back? And what is a transgression? What would fall foul of your values and your beliefs? So it's being pragmatic around that. So again, it's data to sort of look into the past, but also. The human intellect, human decision-making, human insight to understand what will be permissible and what is not permissible. How can you protect that going forward? You could introduce a morality clause into a long-term contract between you and your creator.
0: Let's talk about it from a creator's perspective as well, right? The same thing applies to a creator and you might have posted something five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago that is maybe not acceptable in today's context. As a creator, do you go back and keep reviewing all your old content, pull those down?
1: The short answer is I don't know. I mean, even the most saccharine of creators today made a misstep. When they were younger, I'm lucky enough to be on the wrong side of 50. And so social media wasn't around when I was in my teens. I'm sure I did some crazy things and said some crazy things in my teens. Luckily, that isn't carved in stone on any social media platform. I had to have some sympathy for it all. I think people have to decide whether they take it down, depending on what it is, or apologize and move on. But it's, you know, I think people have to view a creator today rather than what they were like in their formative years, in their early teens, before they were actually fully formed creators. does pose an important question in terms of influences in content creation. When does the amateur become the professional? What is that mark? Is it when they've got 1,000 followers, 10,000 followers? Is it when they reach 25? You know, what is the marker? And as consumers, how forgiving can we be to our favorite creator?
0: Makes sense. And on that note, I'll ask this question to a professional. You've received the influencer... Top 50 for three years in a row. What is it that you do differently that's helping you perform better, stand out? Any tips and advice?
1: Well, <laughs> I don't know where you found that stat, but it is true. I, I think I was the only person on that list. What advice can I say? I don't really know. It's not really up for me to say what the right way of doing things, the wrong way of doing things. I think being old helps. I think being independent helps. You know, I'm not really affiliated to uh, any one brand or any one platform. I think that helps I, I can have a truer voice. I give a lot of stuff away for free. I speak at around 15, 20 events a year. I've written over 250 articles and i've published almost 100 weekly newsletter editions so i give a lot away for free but most of my stuff isn't self-promotional it's about trying to have an opinion on how as an industry we can move forward and we can professionalize and uh, luckily that's chimes with the judges that award these badges
0: got it and when we talk about influencer campaigns per se you know there is this belief that it's maybe more short-term short-lived attention span is low as a brand when you're basically working with influencers how do you make a campaign impactful but also make sure that it survives for some time or you know retains its value over time or is that even the right kind of expectation to have
1: yeah again it's an interesting one i'm going to push back on you saying attention spans are getting shorter because that is the perceived wisdom but tiktok is actually lengthening its videos you were seen hilton hotels a few weeks ago it, launched an ad campaign or an influencer campaign on TikTok, which was over 10 minutes. So it's not all about 15-second or 30-second or 60-second TikToks. It's about understanding what your audience is, having a point of view, understanding where you're playing as well. You know, Where's your audience hanging out? Going back to this Hilton ad, I think it really understood the platform well and it understood its audience well. The same video wouldn't have translated quite as well on YouTube, for example, but it really knew the nuances, the trends, it knew the creators, and so really understood what was happening on that platform, who were the main influencers on that platform, and what were the inside jokes happening at that time. So that means you have to know the platform inside out, you have to know your audience inside out, and you have to know the right people that can translate your messages, i.e. the creators on that platform.
0: So that's a good point, right? Which means that as a brand, also your strategy is very different if you are doing something on TikTok versus Instagram versus YouTube, right? And does that come down to budgets again at the end of the day? Like you don't want to ideally just use the same piece of content and spray it everywhere. So do you think it's a budget thing or how would small brands try to nail this better?
1: Again, scrolling back to what your objectives are, for sure, there's a budgery concern, but it's understanding what your objectives are and understanding where your audience is. So, you know, if you're building community, if you're building awareness, if you're building brand equity, I don't know if TikTok's the right place for it. You know, I'd happily have a discussion about it and be convinced. I don't know possibly enough about that. I would think, you know, longer form content on YouTube would help create a community If you're looking for really smart aesthetics, then Instagram might be the right place for it. So it depends on what your objectives are and the demographic of your audience. But there is this great priming effect of having created content on different platforms. And we know that if it starts off on TikTok, we're more likely to be positively disposed as consumers when we see that brand advertising on Instagram. If we see a piece of content on a YouTube ad that we've already seen on TikTok, we're less likely to sort of have our thumbs hovering over the the skip button on the ad. And if we see it on the telly box on, on sort of traditional linear television, again, we have a more positive sentiment towards that piece of content if we first seen it on TikTok or Instagram. So there's this priming effect. And I think going back to budgets, I think a few years ago, creator content was on the peripheries of the marketing mix. And I think it's front and center now and not necessarily repurposing, but working with the creator. It starts off on a platform, maybe uh, that'd be the nucleus of the program but that same creator then might produce content which works in out of home. It might be on a YouTube video. It might be in a live event. You know, It might be part of email marketing. So there are different ways of working with the same creator. So it's not necessarily repurposing the content, but it's working harder with that one content creator. Got it. Makes sense. You
0: talked a little bit about this before through the Example of Hilton, any other recent influencer marketing campaigns you've come across where you've been really impressed or it's, you know, surprised you?
1: You're an American, I'm going to plead the fifth on that, only because as I lead the influencer marketing trade body, the 16 members that we have, they're all progressive, leading agencies and platforms all creating, I think, really bleeding edge content. So I won't name any of them because I would have to name all of them. But have a look at the names of our members, and I think you'll be very impressed with the sort of content that has been created. Awesome. So we'll
0: spare you on that. Uh, <laughs> so what do you think is the next natural evolution for this industry? Right. And we've been talking a little bit about how the influencer marketing industry is going to grow. Of course, as IMTB, you would want to play an influential role as uh, over there as well. What is the next natural progression here?
1: I think increasingly we are seeing the pursuit of creator-owned, creator-promoted brands. And we're going to see a lot more of that this year and a lot more going forward. And this isn't necessarily new by any stretch of the imagination, but we're seeing a lot more of that. We're seeing it with Mr. Beast Burgers and Feastables, with Emma Chamberlain's Coffee, with David Dobrik's Pizza. We're seeing it with KSI and Logan Paul and Prime Hydration. So we're seeing a lot more. It's kind of moving from celebrity down to the mid-tier as well. Starting New phenomenon, of course. You, know, Emily Rice, launched Glossier from her blog into the gloss. I think it was at 2016. But scrolling back, you know, we've seen it with celebrities and we've seen it with sportsmen. Uh, has anyone ever heard of Salton? Sort of ink. No one's ever heard of sort of ink, but they're the guys that were providing or building the George Foreman grill. The George Foreman grill sold 100 million units in the 90s and early 2000s. So it's not a new phenomenon, but we'll see a lot more of that. But I also think we'll see, and I hinted at it a little bit earlier, we'll see the velveteen rope between the brand and the creator being pulled to a side and the creator sort of coming into the hallowed VIP area of the brand. And rather than just promoting a brand's products, they will co-create brands. And they'll also become more creative directors. We've seen that with Diet Coke and Kate Moss. We've seen that with Louis Vuitton, Noah Hennessy, with Farrell. We've seen that with Pretty Little Thing in the UK with Molly May Haig and Jim Shark with David Lade. So we'll be welcoming them in. And why would brands not want to welcome them? Because they own this community that brands are trying to tap into, And if you like, they're like focus groups or the steroids. They know exactly what the audience, their community wants and what it doesn't care for. And they know how to deliver that. They know what won't work, how to translate brand messages into messaging that is palatable for their audience. So we'll see a lot more of that. And we'll see a lot more creators being their own brands. We've shifted nomenclature, I think, also over the last few years from influencer, to content creator. Increasingly, influencers want to be known as founders. So there's this shift as the march of progress. And I think that's something that's really interesting to watch.
0: It will be interesting to watch. Before we close out for today, I have a fun question for you. If you were to take an influencer out to lunch, who would you want to go out with?
1: I think I'll take Jimbo Hawkins out for lunch. He's big everywhere, but he's big on Instagram. He's a plus size skater. He goes by the handle Manatee. I think he'll be a lot of fun because he can do all the skills, all the uh, the stunts on skates and on a on skateboard. But he's also, as I say, a plus size guy. And I think he'll be a lot of laughs over a long lunch.
0: Awesome. That's nice. It's always fun when you can challenge norms, right? And it also gives viewers more confidence that you know you can do it as well and you need to go challenge these norms and so on so it's amazing that creators like them exist and help bring that positivity in life
1: i think that's very important positivity but also it's important from we're seeing a lot of pushback now on image manipulation and on the way the body image is portrayed on social media. So I think it's really positive that we're seeing different shapes, doing stunts that, you know, doing backflips on skates, for example, and a plus-size guy can do that. You know, I've seen him doing mountain climbing as well. <laughs> it seems very hard work, but he pulls it off. So yeah, I enjoy his videos. But B, I think it would be very funny to have an uproarious lunch with.
0: Awesome. So before we sign off, if somebody's starting out in influencer marketing, what's one piece of advice you'd give
1: them? I think become a creator yourself, not for the clout, but to understand the practicalities of each platform, what it's like to create content on each platform, understanding the algorithm, how that works, getting into the mindset of it. I think that's really important, but also to carry on learning. We said right at the beginning that the industry is moving at such a lick that you can never stand still. If you're standing still, you, you, you're going to be left behind. So carry on reading, carry on listening to excellent podcasts like this one, carry on listening to podcasts, carry on reading blogs, carry on learning about the industry. Those are my two takeaways, I would say. Awesome. Thank
0: you so much for sharing that. I've had a great time talking to you today, and I'm sure we will see the influencer marketing industry grow over the next few years, and folks like you are obviously at the center of it, trying to, you know, shape it and give it the right positive direction. So thanks a ton for the effort that people like you are putting and hope for a bright future for influencer marketers and brands as well. And all of us grow together.
1: I'm confident that we will have a very bright future as long as we professionalize. But with that in mind, I think we will have a very bright future. Thank you very much for having me on your show.
0: Thanks a lot. Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast, is brought to you by Philo. Philo is the easiest way to get access to authenticated creator data from hundreds of different platforms. To know more about Philo, visit getphilo.com. That's get p-h-y-l-l-o.com also make sure to search for influencer marketing podcast in apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast listening platforms and don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes on behalf of the team here at philo thank you so much for listening